The power of the universe is at your full disposal. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. So simple, yet so complex. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. The power of our future. Without further ado, please help me in welcoming Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey everybody, welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm uh, co-host Jordan Hammond with other co-host Andrew Plaw. Yes, I'm the other. Other. That other guy. And today we have a special guest, David Hall. I guess I'm the other other. You're the other. The, the third. The special other. Today you're the special <laughs> other. I don't know about that. So we were mentioning prior to the show going live that when it comes to David Hall's in the PowerShell world, there are quite a few. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, a few of us running around here. I guess it's a little hard to uh, disseminate who's, who's who in the zoo, for lack of a better term. And um, then we had stumbled on because you recently rebranded to Power Automate. Cyber Automate. Cyber Automate, I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I, I was Signal Warrant, signalwarrant.com on pretty much all the social platforms and all that for years. I probably started, I don't know, 2014 or somewhere around there. But that was more of a an army specific kind of moniker. I was uh, in a previous life, a, a Signal Corps warrant officer in the Army. So uh, I did, actually on Fernando's advice, I rebranded to something a little less Army specific and something that other people may understand what the heck's going on with cyber automate. So that's kind of the story and, there. And you're talking about Francisco, our previous guest who actually recommended you for the podcast. Um, Smart guy. So what yeah. Oh, definitely. That was an amazing episode. Um, he's an awesome person. Uh, yeah. So what is a signal warrant, though? Signal warrant is oh, just a warrant officer, which is um, a version of officer in the Army that is specifically more technical focused. So it's more the engineering side of uh, things. There's all kinds of warrant officers in the Army, but Signal Corps is the, um, how could I equate it? The Army's version of IT, for lack of a better term. Um, Fernando, that we, we just talked about, he was a cyber warrant officer. He was first, before that, a Signal Corps, and then switched over to do more cyber-specific stuff. But that's kind of the deal there. Interesting. So you spent a good bit of your career um, in the Army. If I recall on LinkedIn that you did some educating while you are in there. Yeah, so I like to tell everybody... Uh, Working at Microsoft is my first real job. I was in the Army for almost 22 years. Um, the last three or four years, I was teaching at uh, the Warren Officer Schoolhouse at Fort Gordon, Georgia, so teaching Microsoft courses, and we had a PowerShell course that we sent folks through and also did a little bit of um, mood lining on the uh, college side. Don't necessarily have time to do that now, but have done that in the past. In in those times, what were some of the things that you kind of learned? Because I, I imagine um, in the army, they have a bit of a refined system for educating people and taking them from point A to point B. Um, in, in your experience, what were some of the kind of key factors that played into someone successfully learning things kind of quickly? I, I think the biggest part is trying to, and this is a term that we use a lot around Microsoft, is operationalizing whatever you're learning. Like, you can learn uh, Sentinel or PowerShell or Python or whatever it is, kind of in a vacuum and in um, a test bed scenario. But how do you take that knowledge and operationalize it into your daily workflow? How do I, in my case, when I was in the military, how do I take PowerShell knowledge and actually solve daily problems with it. So that was kind of, that was really my big learning point. Not necessarily, we didn't really have at that point a PowerShell class that we could go through uh, for Army folks. It was more just solving daily, daily problems and trying to make myself more efficient. So when, when it comes to Army, is it something like, did you have to go through a lot of red tape to start to use PowerShell or is it, hey, this will do the job and they're happy to let you just run with it? That's an interesting question. Uh, in probably most cases, there's some some red tape, and it has to be vetted by all the cyber folks and, and those kinds of things. Uh, I operated on 
for the most part, on the tactical side of uh, the Army. So what I did specifically was I managed an active directory force that we, with uh, infantry brigades, we picked up and we took to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I had full administrative control over all of our infrastructure. Um, you know, we still had compliance things that we had to meet, but as far as, you know, vetting what we ran on it, it was pretty much me and, you know, a couple of my superiors. One thing that we um, mentioned last time we talked about security is kind of the breadth of knowledge that it requires. And what you mentioned earlier about kind of operationalizing things and giving people a context to understand the technology that they're learning. Um, that is a challenging task. How did you approach that? Did just kind of give scenarios and kind of describe like, hey, here's the an environment you might see, or you know, how do you kind of help give that context without having to explain everything? It's definitely a challenge. Um, I, I think the way I do it is examples. I'll just give people examples of. Um, I think one of my first PowerShell scripts I wrote was uh, one to create mailboxes and uh, credentials. You know, without it pulled all the data from a spreadsheet and automated that whole process where that was something in the real world that was taking my team hours and hours and hours to do because we were clicking through the GUI all the time. Uh, and, you know, we used PowerShell as an example to, to make that process much, much more efficient. So I noticed when, when I first started bringing PowerShell into a, a previous job, you, you could go and put all the automation, but the test case you have to go to overprove that it wouldn't do the wrong thing or mess anything up. Like those steps, that's, that, that's the struggle to get through. You have to first prove that it works the way you intend for a solid couple of months before you can even get the, okay, we can try it in this small subset. It took a long time to be able to start throwing my automation out there. Yeah, absolutely. Still, still have to test it in a in a sandbox and make sure it doesn't break anything in the sandbox. And then you're slowly rolling it out to to a certain subset of users, and you know, doing the whole deployment ring thing and, and make sure uh, nothing goes sideways. You mentioned that Microsoft was your first real job. Um, congrats, that's a pretty cool. First real <laughs> job. Um, I'm lucky. But... <laughs> they haven't figured out I'm not smart enough to work here yet. So. Um, so what do you do at Microsoft? So when I first hired on, I was kind of a generalist, uh, what we call platform. So working on Windows Server and administrative tasks and those kinds of things. Uh, for about the last probably two years now, I'm totally focused on the security aspect of things. So I'm helping customers deploy uh, Microsoft Sentinel and work with all the automation capabilities in Sentinel and MDE and all the Defender suite. So trying to, or helping customers kind of figure out how to pull all those things together and see the signals they need to see uh, from a defensive uh, cyber perspective. I see you use that signals word again. Um, <laughs> fitting, right? Do you use yeah, that with right. customers? Do you find that's all like kind of time. a working yes. vernacular? Yep. All the time. Nice. I've, I've heard of signals intelligence, so it kind of does make sense. Um, yeah, take now, all these signals from all these different products and synthesize them in a log aggregation tool and then run some automation over to see if we can see what we want to see. And from a big picture in the Azure space that you work in, um, what would be the technologies at play with that situation? Well, so Sentinel is the primary tool uh, Really what it's built on is KQL, which is similar to SQL type of language, but you can use KQL to really get granular results out of, you know, the, the millions and millions of logs that you may have. Uh, so that's kind of the two primary technologies that I work with on a daily basis. So on your YouTube channel, your last like 14 or 15 videos have all been based on KQL. So I assume that it's just because it's, you, you've been using it more and more in work. So you figure you'd document your, your own learning or is that just for, just for giggles? Yeah, that's, that's one of them. Uh, I need to know this. And to be totally honest with you, when we started, when I started doing kind of the security focused stuff here in Microsoft, I didn't really 
mean, I knew how to spell KQL, but outside of that, I, I knew as much as, you know, anybody else without some kind of prior knowledge. So it's been a discovery learning uh, thing for me. And it was kind of serendipitous that Rod Trent, another one of our cloud solution architects, created a whole series of blog posts, uh, I think probably in January or so. And I pinged him and said, hey, you mind if I make videos for to go along with all these blog posts? Because some people learn by reading things and they can retain it. Some people learn more visually with, uh, you know, seeing a video or something. So that was kind of my evidence to get started in KQL. And we hear a lot of great things about KQL and it's pretty cool. Um, I think any kind of thing that empowers you to query that much data and like you said earlier, synthesize it and get some really juicy stuff out of what is otherwise just a massive amount of stuff. Um, yes. But, and you mentioned Sentinel, but are there use cases outside of Sentinel? Like just log analytics on its own. Do you find that a lot of people are using it and use KQL to look at those? Um, you can. There's KQL use cases for a lot of the Defender suite. Like uh, Defender for Endpoint has a built-in advanced hunting functionality in the portal that you use the same KQL there as you use in uh, Sentinel, for example. KQL is kind of the 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 bedrock technology behind Azure Monitor and Log Analytics and all those any kind of Microsoft product. You, you're pretty much using KQL. Awesome. So if you're in that ecosystem, you learn it sooner or later and um shout out to rod trent we've we've uh, put him in our show notes a few times he'll be in there again we'll put that series because it really is nice to have a starting off point um because in my experience kql isn't terribly complex you just got to kind of start chipping away at it and seeing yeah, how it works it's but. it's really intuitive from my perspective kind of like powershell um, powershell wasn't all that difficult to get started with and kql is kind of the same way now the resources for kql at this point are a little more sparse than what you can find for PowerShell, but that's kind of part of the YouTube thing. I think that with these um, KQL queries, though, what is common, or at least what I found, is if you find a couple that work, you can save them and, and like you're saying, add them into different parts of uh, the Azure suite or whatever to look for certain things. Then you can enable automation on the back end of that with playbooks. So if you find a credential that looks like it's been stolen, you can take some immediate actions to mitigate that, you know, without the human having to sit there and one, see the logs and then do the action. So Sentinel will do a whole lot of that for you. And I could see it being really useful for security use cases, like you're saying, but do you find customers who are using those same signals to solve problems that are not necessarily security related, but just you have that wealth of information and the capability of automating things that might as well be proactive? Uh, I'm sure they are. I don't necessarily see it in my day to day because, like I said, I'm I'm focused pretty much 100% on the security side of things. But you know, anybody that can use or if you have uh, an expanse of data, I could see an, any number uh, number of um, use cases to solve you know regular world real world problems with that kind of technology. It's a pretty powerful tool set to solve a lot of different problems, that's for sure. It's cool to be alive in an age where we get to kind of see this. And I guess for you, really experience the kind of cutting edge of technology in this uh, domain. Yeah, I started this in 1998 when none of this was around. So I've been doing this a while. Life is much easier now. Is it? Or can be. Yeah. Well, it's easier to... I guess there's more tools available to you, but there's also more tools for those that are trying to, they're on the other side of security as well. No, that is absolutely correct. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I don't think that problem ever goes away. No. So you mentioned being in IT for a long time and seeing things changed. Um, what is the same? Like what hasn't changed and just what's the constant? I think the constant is the people. You have to have, you can you know, turn on every widget and piece of software uh, that you want to, and especially from a security perspective, we talk about, you know, putting all the speed bumps in front of a, a potential attacker. You can do that with a lot of software and kind of just think you check the box and things are working and things are happening without uh, a human intervention. But the, to me, the real key to 
security and anything in IT is, you know, the people sitting behind the keyboard. You have to have passion for what you're doing and and really want to be, uh, especially in IT, a lifelong learner because you're never going to quit uh, learning whether you want to or not. So, yeah, for me, it's it's a people. It's funny you mentioned passion. There was something in your LinkedIn that actually started an argument between Andrew and I uh, as a quote about passion. <laughs> he wrote an article on LinkedIn about, um, yeah, I think it was passion is necessary, but can't be taught. You see it. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, it's from. I mean, this is from. I think it's from five years ago or three years ago or something. Yeah, that was a while ago. It led to a, an argument between us, and we figured we'd, uh, we'd we'd hold off on the argument midway through, and would bring it live where we'd have the uh, a, a third party on it. Perfect. So, so answers of the belief that passion can be taught, and I disagree with that. Mm -hmm. What? You're gonna, you're I don't know if I'd say that. Me now? Well, let's hear. Let's hear from our um, special guest. Mm -hmm. So, what are what's your experience with passion and, and kind of seeing people's success and kind of where it played in their trajectory and their careers? Because um, you mentioned it being very important. Right. So for me, passion. I define it as, and I guess I'll give an example. I always tell people that I retired from the army in 2018. I haven't worked a day since then because what I do on a daily basis, I'm passionate about, and I have autonomy to do, you know, what I need to do without all the other, um, I'll say, oversight that the army provides. I think that's a good word. Uh, but, and even uh, interviewing people for roles within Microsoft, you can you can talk to somebody for ten or fifteen minutes and kind of get an idea of whether they're going to be a self-starter, lifelong learner, if they really want to be here to do this type of work, or it's just a nine to five paycheck thing. Uh, and I don't think for me, it's if you find something that flips that switch for you and you have the passion for it, you know, it all kind of comes together. But at the same time, people have to pay bills. So you may be stuck in a situation where you're doing something you're not necessarily as passionate about, uh, but it's kind of a means to an end. Now, if you're in a situation, can you kind of become passionate about something? Um, maybe I like to think of passion as maybe a spectrum and maybe you're like kind of in the middle, you're not really affected either way, but perhaps someone can help shift your perspective, maybe help you see things through a different kind of lens and then maybe find that passion. I think that's, True. Yeah. I mean, and just personally, I can kind of see myself going down that road with KQL, for instance, where on a daily basis, you know, prior to a year or so ago, I didn't really have any exposure to KQL. So I didn't really know I liked it and had a, a passion for it. But you find as you're going through your career and, you know, different job roles and responsibility roles, you kind of find those things that check the boxes for you. And yeah, I think you, you can develop, definitely develop passions for other things as, as time goes on. So I think that's a, a familiarity thing. So like with, with KQL, it may be something you could be passionate about, but you didn't know about it. So I think uh, learning about something, you can find out if you are passionate, but if you started learning KQL and you weren't passionate, I don't think there's a, a switch to flip for that. I think the passion has to come naturally. You just don't know if you can be passionate about something until you learn a bit about it. No, I think you're, I think you're right about that. If you, if you start going down a certain learning path and uh, you realize that whatever it is, is just, you can tell when you're happy doing something and you know, when it kind of comes naturally to you uh, for some people, it's writing code for other people, it's managing other people. I think that particularly in the context of spending your time with people and teaching them, it is a lot, it feels a lot more um, worth your time when you're dealing with someone who is passionate. Because um, I think that probably a lot of us have experience with dealing, trying to help people that aren't passionate about something, aren't ready for the lessons, aren't going to kind of take it and run with it. Versus, I, I've had some really great experiences with people who are completely ready, eager, will will ask the right questions, will put themselves in positions to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, and, and even as an instructor, you kind of feed off of that, right? If you if you come into a classroom or a setting where you're teaching people that you can tell that 
are just kind of there to because they have to be there. Somebody told them they had to be there versus somebody that really has passion for whatever the topic is, you know, that really invigorates you as an instructor and uh, to do an even better job, I think. So I wonder how much of when you're learning a new anything, your mindset going into it defines if you have passion about it. Like if you're going into it, it's like, I didn't really want to do this. Are you less likely to then have passion for that just because you went in with that mindset? Or is it just, is there something you're going to be, I, I can imagine there's a scenario no matter what my mindset was, where I wouldn't be passionate about PowerShell. I think there's something to that. I mean, I could, I think I could dive into really any kind of programming language or scripting language and find a passion for it just because I like building things and solving problems and automating things. It kind of scratches that itch. Whereas, you know, like some of the, the mandatory training you have to do as part of your job that is outside of IT stuff, maybe you, you sometimes go into that with, uh, man, I just want to check this box and get this done and, and move on to KQL or PowerShell. Interesting. So, Jordan, I'll give you a situation, a potential situation where someone would not be passionate, not be whatever, then can have a perspective change and, and kind of be more successful. Okay. And that would be starting a career, trying to have a job in IT, having your expectations set that like you have to be a genius to do anything code related. You get your job and your help desk, you're not thinking that it's even possible for you to, to reach this next level because you're just uh, imposter syndrome, all kinds of stuff. Then one day you do a little PowerShell script, you have success, you um, get some happy stuff going on at work, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden you realize, wow, I can do it. And then maybe there is some passion that can be there with someone who is otherwise just kind of like stuck in the mud, not really going anywhere, like not wanting to learn PowerShell, not wanting to kind of take the next steps. Um, so, I think there are some people who've had that experience. Yeah, but that example falls into the one we're talking about, where it's once he started trying PowerShell, he wrote it, he found out it was passionate. It wasn't that he had written some PowerShell and he didn't care for it. And then all of a sudden he wrote different PowerShell and he was then passionate about it. In your scenario, it was he tried PowerShell and was, and it helped him move forward in his career. Not so much that he changed his mind about how he felt about PowerShell and, and improved because of that. Well, I think that there's probably instances before he did the PowerShell that worked where it didn't. But I think that what it provides is a mindset where you're actually solving problems and like actually working on a bigger system rather than just not even seeing the system that you're a part of, right? Not even seeing the value of, of the problems that you're solving every day and how to maybe approach them in a, in a bigger way. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of probably a lot of the barrier to entry for some folks into any kind of programming or getting out of the GUI interface, writing PowerShell, whatever it may be, you, and I can kind of think back to my early days of, you know, you look at PowerShell, it looks like a foreign language if you've never done it before, uh, but you start getting into it and realize that, you know, this is, I can string a few commands together here and really make some impact. And then that kind of, the light bulb goes off in your head, like, well, this is, you don't necessarily have to be a, you know, computer science bachelor's degree trained developer or programmer. I don't even like using those two words because I think we're all kind of developers and programmers at this point. But you don't have to have that specific background to get started and have an impact. So I know Mike Rowe is a big believer that you can just kind of bring passion with you in anything, whether you care for it or not. Uh, his quote was, don't follow your passion, follow opportunity and bring your passion with you, which with that mindset, that tells me that he's a big believer in no matter what you do, you can be passionate about it. You just have to want to be, which I'm not sure if I agree with that one, but I do agree with the follow opportunity over follow passion. I don't so, know if I agree with that either. I, I know there are things out there that if I had to do them on a nine to five basis daily, no matter what it, I'm not going to be passionate about it because it just doesn't fit my mentality. So you could definitely come to that with a better attitude. And maybe that's kind of what he's talking about there, but I don't know about the passion. Part. Yeah, I, I can relate to what he's saying a little bit. Um, I think that there have been times in my life where it's been like, <clears throat> an extended period of like hardship or things that I really was not enjoying and life would be literally miserable if I didn't switch perspectives and just kind of find a way to 
treat whatever you're doing, even if it's a terrible job, as all right, let's master this skill set. Let's get to the highest level we can within this very, very small uh, area to work in. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's like, it is dependent on the situation. If you're in an awful situation, it's too much to expect someone to be able to find passion when like there's no energy, they have an awful job, awful circumstances, mm-hmm. lacking their basic needs being met. But yeah, I think there are some opportunities where people could just kind of tweak how they're approaching it. Like maybe the job sucks, but you can practice the skill of learning new skills, which is something you'll take with you. You can practice your written communication. You can practice, you know, and if you view it from that perspective and kind of like, okay, let's look through the next 10 years of my life. These skills right now that I'm getting paid not that much for will transition to something. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. But to have that perspective in the midst of like a bunch of hardship, that's, not an easy thing to do. We're all humans. Yeah. Hard to do that. Yeah. It's a motivation versus passion. You could be motivated to complete something you're not enjoying to achieve greater. Like for me, I'm very passionate about retirement. It's, <laughs> I, I, I like it very, very much. So I'm motivated to do different tasks that I might not care to do to reach my, my ultimate goal. But that's just the motivation to complete something I might not care for. Right. Uh, instead of just to reach what I am passionate about. Versus the the other scenario with, that I kind of associate passion with is, you know, if I'm at home on a Saturday and I don't have anything to do, maybe I'll just come out here and bang out some some code because I like making things and solving problems and, and all that stuff. And that plus I have a whole probably two years worth of things that I want to do that I haven't gotten to at this point. So for me, that's kind of what it is. If I'm going to be here on a you know, maybe I'll just write some PowerShell code on a Saturday just because. It's nice to find those things in life that work for you, that you can do that with, and it can be regenerative for energy and not just like a sucks all your energy out of you kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And finding those things and cherishing them and then getting paid for them ultimately is definitely the way to approach things because you're going to, at least for me, at least I find I have a better life when I'm doing things I enjoy. For you some could the career lottery if you can put all those things together uh, at the same time, I think. Definitely. Well, that was an interesting uh, little sidebar. I, I figured it would be just because when you first read the quote to be like, we, we, it turned into almost an instant oh. disagreement between us. <laughs> well, it really comes down to that thing I mentioned where it's like, if someone doesn't see the forest through the trees, they're really stuck kind of where they are. A mentor or someone in those types of situations Maybe some senior management, a manager who's good, who can kind of help them with that can really help. But I feel like a lot of jobs and situations don't have those support systems and maybe don't always have the best environments. Oh, my grandson just walked in. All right. <laughs> Welcome, our first uh, child guest. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, adorable. So mild segue, um, we were looking through some of your GitHub stuff and we came across a PS Affirmations um, repository, which is pretty cool. I'm curious to hear kind of where it came from. So it really came from um, me trying to organize my thoughts and uh, from a mental health perspective, feel feel better about it. So. I'm kind of like um, a Labrador puppy that sees a ball rolling down the 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 uh, the floor. There, I just want to chase it, and I'm like that with projects. So I try to do my best to kind of compress my thoughts, either on paper or you know in one of the hundred different apps you could do that with on the on you know the computer. And I came across, and I cannot bullet journaling is where that kind of came from. Uh, Part of bullet journaling is writing down daily or weekly or whatever you want to do it. Affirmations that uh, you kind of, you know, you're thankful for your family or whatever it is, just to kind of give yourself a little bit of mindfulness uh, that what's sitting in front of you in the computer is not the only thing that's going on today. And it really doesn't determine the outcome of, you know, how good or bad your day is for, uh, in a lot of perspective. But part of that problem is 
you know, I can't, it's difficult for me to discipline myself to sit down on a daily basis and write those thoughts out. It's just, I guess it's not in my DNA to do that. So I thought, what if I had uh, some way to automate that process for me where I could create a bunch of affirmations uh, and the computer just tells me what the affirmation is on when I log in or when I open a PowerShell console. That's, so that's kind of the idea behind PS affirmations. I haven't got there to complete yet. Uh, it's, it partially works, uh, but I want to integrate um, some of the voice components of uh, or speech components of Azure and, and things like that. So it's still a work in progress. So um, for the audience out there listening, what is it in a, in a nutshell? Um, you mentioned there's affirmations and it reminds you of things. It looks like there's a couple of capabilities and some ways it could be used. Yeah. So at this point, right now, you just you can create a JSON file. Uh, I suppose you could probably do it with text or whatever. A list of affirmations that uh, you would typically write down in a notebook. We can connect it to your PowerShell profile and PowerShell will or the console will read back one of those uh, affirmations either every time you open a PowerShell console or you can do it daily or, or whatever. But that was kind of the whole idea. Yeah, pretty cool. So anyone out there can use your list of uh, affirmations in the JSON file, invoke REST method it, get your own stuff. Um, but you also have a couple functions for text-to-speech type stuff. What is that? So part of that is, I think one of those was um, enabling the PowerShell, the built-in um, .NET class that will allow the PowerShell console to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So that's one of them. Uh, the other piece was me playing around with the speech API in Azure. So with that, you can customize the voices and, and all kinds of things. So it's not um, a computer-type voice speaking to you. You could actually uh, customize the voice to, you know, sound like your mother or grandmother or however you want to do it. So it like uses a service that converts text to speech in Azure using whatever you specify for the kind of. You call the the Azure API. It reads what's in your JSON file and regurgitates it back out to you. Yeah, kind of cool. That's fun. <laughs> We'll have a link to this in the show notes. You're a, a perfect setup to to meet the uh, an old '80s movie where every time you open a PowerShell, it can give you a "Hello, Dave." Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. That's very cool. I definitely recommend some people in our audience check that out because it's nice. Like those affirmations are things that you know are true, but if in the day to day, as you get caught up in things, you forget and other things come to mind and you know we can start feeling those imposter syndrome feelings and getting overwhelmed by how hard our jobs can be and the problems that we have to solve if we don't look at them step by step imposter syndrome is real it's real for all of us so anybody out there listening i work at microsoft but i'm a hundred percent sure i'm not smart enough to be here uh, because imposter syndrome is a real thing you just gotta do things like this you know i'm not a podcaster or you know any kind of celebrity personality but i'm trying to give back to a little bit of what i know there's always somebody out there that knows less than you they're starting out fresh out of school or whatever uh, and whatever you have to offer can be useful to that person so yeah it's important to i mean for me i find it easier to embrace the fact that I'm always learning and I don't feel perfect now that I'm in a spot in my career where I'm a little bit more comfortable and, and have the safety to do that. But I encourage people who are even more junior in their career and who are maybe feeling vulnerable about being a real imposter because you've only been doing it for so long. Um, it's actually like a sign of strength and intelligence, I feel, for people who to ask questions and actually be present um, when they don't fully understand a technology. That is someone who I'm comfortable um, working with. Um, no, it's a lot better than just just going, not asking any questions, just pretending, nodding, assuming you're going to look it all up later and connect the dots in your own head when you could be saving yourself hours of time just by having a five-minute conversation with someone who is uh, very happy to talk about it more than likely. It's okay to say, I don't know, as long as you follow that up with a, but I'll figure it out or I'll 
talk to somebody else to, you know, I tell customers all the time, I don't know because I don't know. There's things about Sentinel. I work with it every day. Uh, but there's so many moving pieces to that thing that, you know, it changes on a daily basis. I, there are things that I don't know. And I don't have a problem telling you that I don't know because if we need to figure it out, we'll figure it out. And that's big to hear. Um, I know that for me, when it comes to an earlier time in my career, before I would think about going to a, a job that was maybe known for its technical prowess, um, I, I would feel that way a lot. Um, I was but, very intimidated when I first walked in here uh, just because, you know, it's it's the mothership. You think there's no way that I can be an employee at Microsoft because I don't know half of what all these other people do. And, you know, to be honest with you, I still feel that today because there's so much to learn. And but we try to uh, tell each other around here that we're not we're not uh, know-it-alls, we're learn-it-alls. So that's for me really important. I wish earlier in my career I would have known that those people who you really look up to at those companies, they don't know it all. They have to ask. They have to say to customers. And it's okay. The expectations are such that in most situations you can say, hey, I don't know that. I'm going to have to um, consult the team, check in with my sources and come back with you. Like There is space for that. And I know that I didn't always yeah. think there was. If you watch uh, some of Jeff Snover's old uh, videos on or even his new ones. He, I think he says it almost every time he gives a, a presentation. But, you know, this guy has forgotten more about PowerShell than this morning than I know. And he always says something on his videos that, uh, you know, I'm going to mess this up. It's OK. We're, we're going to figure it out and, you know, keep going. And that's what I try to live by, you know, on a regular basis. So That was one of the key points he made during the keynote speech at the PowerShell Summit this year was... Uh, making mistakes is not only okay, it can help you learn. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. Yeah. Um, and now this isn't necessarily related to the Army, but I think that environments and organizations that are not super afraid of mistakes and issues, who are used to fixing things, who are, you know, not everything super precious, are a lot um, more able to make change. And do appropriate things and implement policies and do that kind of thing um, rather than just being super afraid to kind of try out a new thing or whatever. Because mistakes are great opportunities to learn. I mean, Sorry, we can ahead. analyze it all day long and come to a point where we're paralyzed by analyzing whatever the problem is. Uh, but if you take the uh, kind of mentality that we're going to iterate over this process, it may not be perfect the first time, uh, but we're going to keep working at it, and eventually we're going to get, you know, ultimately where we want to go. Definitely. And being in an environment where you know that that's the general tone makes it a lot easier to learn and make mistakes 100%. and do new things. Yeah. 100%. So for the junior people out there, try and find organizations that have those that good culture, the learning situation going on. And for people who are more senior, try and foster that, you know, lead by example. I'm sorry to cut you off. Another thing I tell uh, younger folks when I do mentoring and I do some mentoring inside Microsoft is the employee pr perspective employer is not just interviewing you. You're also interviewing them. You know, there are situations out there where you, you don't want to work for XYZ company because the culture just doesn't mesh with you know, how you do things on a regular basis. It's important to, to understand that it's, it's a two-way interview there, right? You're not, you're not just sitting in the hot seat as a prospective employee. Yeah, you have value that you are bringing to the table. That's why they're talking to you. So don't forget that. Yep. So we mentioned a whole bunch of stuff, but we let's go back to the basics. So when did you initially kind of get into PowerShell? Where was PowerShell in your journey of things? I think I started around when we were going from B2 to B3. So when was that? Around the server 2008 days. Uh, at that point in my career, I was that was right when I was transitioning over to a warrant officer. So I was my day to day was more on the engineering side of, you know, managing a, an active directory infrastructure and, and all that stuff that goes along with it. 
and there's typically in the army, there's only one warrant officer, one or two warrant officers in, you know, a, a brigade combat team that is 10,000 or so soldiers and, you know, a, a few thousand devices. So the, the hours in the day are not endless. You know, you have to, it's incumbent upon you to figure out how to automate some of that stuff just to, to save your own sanity. And that's where uh, it kind of started with me is, you know, how do I figure out how to make some of this happen without me physically being on the keyboard? Uh, and PowerShell was the natural first step. Prior to that, were you a programmer type guy or first language? Not at all. PowerShell was my first foray into anything programming. I mean, I'd seen a, a few DB scripts, but nothing that I had even, you know, put together myself. PowerShell is really where it started for me. I was in the same boat, and I feel when PowerShell is where you start, you're you're missing something, but there's also a nice component of it where I didn't even realize what object-based programming was. I just always had objects and it was fantastic. I never had to go through uh, never had to learn text. Play, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I felt like I got to uh, skip a lot of the the frustrations, but I missed some core understandings. I had to go back and relearn to, to be better at PowerShell. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's, that's probably, uh, that's definitely my experience. Very similar. Yeah, it's a fun journey. Um, how, where did the kind of, you mentioned earlier um, that the founder of PowerShell kind of was comfortable making mistakes and talked about that kind of thing. And the general PowerShell community had a really nice vibe to it, I guess, where it was really teaching, learning, that kind of thing. How did that play into your career and your kind of journey? Because um, I, I, clearly you mentioned it earlier, so it must have had some impact. Did you take some of those lessons with you into the army and kind of apply them in your own way? Well, I think specifically to the community, uh, the way the community treats people that are maybe just getting started with PowerShell, I think is key to growing the community, right? Uh, we could, depending on how you treat those people that are just getting started, really could compress the, the community and turn a lot of people off really quickly. And my experience was with trying to figure out PowerShell was you ask a question, somebody's going to you know, help you figure it out. And that's, you know, true to this day. That's been key to, and that's kind of what I try to do um, with my YouTube channel and, and things like that. I don't know a whole lot, but I share what I do know. So that's kind of how I look at it. And in sharing, you probably learn it even better. So it, it works for everybody. Absolutely. Yep. It seems like teaching is one of those skills that you've really refined over your career for quite a while now. The military is really good about teaching you how to teach. Uh, it's kind of a, a unwritten job requirement, uh, particularly if you're uh, the warrant officer corps. Specifically, there are so few of us that you it's almost impossible to go through you know the day to day management of uh, your infrastructure without teaching some of your junior folks, you know, what you know and how to do it. And guess what? What if uh, I want to take vacation? You know, how are things going to work if if that happens? You have to have people there to, to pick up the, the pieces for you. So that's, you know, teaching what you know is, is absolutely key. We used to call it uh, training your replacement. That was always one of the, the warrant officer uh, kind of live by monikers is train your replacement. Don't hold all that knowledge to yourself and just go about your daily business uh, because at some point you're going to be gone. Uh, you're going to be on vacation. You know, in the military, we talked about you just being gone, gone, dead, dead, like real gone. Uh, so it kind of takes on a different uh, meaning in the military. anyway. Definitely. Yeah. I, I guess uh, one thing I was told, when I first started working here is, you know, if I were to get hit by a bus, who would take it over, which is just kind of a throwaway for an admin, but I guess in your case, it was more of a, a, a real case scenario. It's actually something that we talk about on a regular basis, uh, especially during, you know, the height of Iraq and Afghanistan. 
because things can't just stop when somebody else doesn't show up tomorrow. We have to keep keep the, the train moving. How do you handle teaching for varied skill sets? So if, if you're in a room and you have like a, a wide range of power technology from beginning to end, you just do you still cover the basics where the people that are maybe a little bit more experienced might not get as much from the start, or do you just dive into kind of a middle ground? I try, I try to kind of get a feel for uh, the environment before we really get in it too far. Um, and when I kind of run through this scenario with what I do on a regular basis. I often teach, you know, Defender for Endpoint workshops and those kinds of things. And the the, the skill set with MDE in this scenario, you know, may range from I've heard of Defender for Endpoint to, you know, I installed it, implemented it, and I'm running it on a daily basis. So how do you keep everybody in between engaged? Um, my go-to is as many examples and demos and actually showing people how to do things as opposed to, you know, kind of just talking over scenarios. That's kind of the way I learn. And, you know, I, I just, that's the way I teach is demo scenario based type of things. That's been on, on my mind. We have a new person that just started. that's going to be stepping into a webcast with me where I talk PowerShell a lot and she's, very new to PowerShell. And she mentioned sometimes I casually throw in information that makes her lock up and afraid to do something without fully explaining it. Uh, her, her example was I was talking about uh, the three different registry hives where you have your applications for uninstall. So if you're looking to uninstall Firefox or Chrome, but it might be per user or per not, you can go through the three different hives and, and uninstall it that way. And then I guess I threw in there, if the application you put as asterisk is going to uninstall everything, and that, that locked her up so much that she was afraid to go through and really test it, which gave me a chance to talk about what if, which was fantastic. But it made me wonder how often I'm just casually throwing away not relevant information that's scaring people off from actually using it. It kind of goes back to uh, making your audience comfortable with asking questions, right? Like there's value in somebody not knowing something because I can guarantee you somebody listening is asking themselves the same question and wishes that somebody would you know, clarify whatever that specific point or technology is. Uh, it, it goes back to you, you got to be comfortable in this business asking questions uh, to learn anything. I do know she was very excited to be on camera in future webcasts. So she, she'll have a, a direct line to to make me stop and re-explain something, which I'll, I'll be better for it. I'm excited for it. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so... Let's talk security at large. You know, this world we're living in, security is an issue for everyone, right? Like kind of globally, if, if one big company has an issue, it kind of trickles down and affects everything, whatever. It's a big, big problem. Um, what are the largest challenges that we face, like as the world at large when it comes to security? Um, so earlier I talked about the value of the people behind the keyboard, right? That's also our biggest Achilles heel is the people behind the keyboard. because. Uh, they can be exploited in so many other ways than uh, a system or mechanism or software. And, you know, just being a human, I think a lot of us want to think that uh, there's good in everybody and everybody's intent is on the up and up. When you get that email from whoever it is, it's actually a phishing attack, but studies have shown a lot of us still click on those things because we either think we're missing something or we think uh you know th there's everything is good around us or whatever the case may be uh, but from a security perspective yeah it's the person behind the keyboard that is the biggest challenge i think interesting yeah it kind of sounds like um with driving, you know, we encourage people to defensively drive to stay safe. Um, so I guess that security mindset would encourage people to defensively use all electronics and anything related to signals or information at all. And there's also the, you know, part of being human is you, a lot of times you think it's never going to happen to me, right? Until it does. And then, you know, you have a significant emotional event afterwards. So it's, 
you're trying to train people and yourself to to think in a defensive mindset all the time when uh, I'm not so sure our brains are wired to think like that. So yeah, it's a, it's a moving target for sure. So if you do like trainings with end users or like uh, test things to see how they're doing with the trainers, whether they click on links, at a certain point, do you start teaching them to just never click on anything, even if they something they need to open and read? Or I guess, I guess, how do you find something where you can make sure they're properly educated, but not scare them off so much that they stop clicking on everything? We, we all, I, I've heard that many times, and I always give the example that if we extrapolate that thought process out, right, we could just turn the computer off. If we turn the computer off, we're secure, right? but we're also not all that productive. So you have to find that um, that median in there, that happy place. Of, and part of it goes to, you know, you have to do reinforcement training because, again, we're not wired to necessarily think in a defensive mindset uh, 24-7. So it, it's, you know, a regular recurring type of thing we need to reiterate. And I think ultimately, as time goes on, we need to start doing this stuff at an earlier and earlier age with how kind of everyone's connected all the time and everyone is yes. exploitable, so to speak. Um, yeah. And yes. I think that what you mentioned earlier about people being the kind of constant um, where they can be exploited, I think that it's important to realize that humans are humans. And if you're one of the people that, that makes a mistake, that is going to happen, unfortunately. Like when dealing with humans, mistakes will be made eventually. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Yep, but absolutely. hopefully design systems that are resilient to that type of thing, um, especially important systems. Right. And that's why we talk about defense in depth. We put all those different speed bumps uh, in front of an attacker to increase the attacker's uh, cost and time it takes them to to get to, you know, the domain admin credential or whatever. So if something is missed along the way, we have another speed bump in place to to protect us along that path. Yeah, I always like to remind people who are just sysadmins or whatever in an organization that doesn't have security in the title, um, you still play a very important role in the security of the world. You yes. can still have a large impact in securing things. And sometimes you can be uh, have more of an impact than, for example, some outside security consultant coming by for a bit. You know, As someone who knows the systems, who works there, who has the access long-term, you can really, uh, do something and 100% right that's the most frequent ingress point is just a user you know an attacker finds a user that has credentials out there or they can be fished or socially engineered or whatever and then at that point now we can move laterally throughout the environment find you know privileged credentials and then you can cancel christmas at that point but it all starts with you know, the regular user just checking their email behind the behind the keyboard. I can get behind canceling Christmas. <laughs> Jordan, the Grinch Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are all grown, so I don't have to do. Although you did see my grandson. Yeah, mm -hmm. he, he likes Christmas. Yeah. Normally, I'm not allowed to talk about Christmas because my overall negative attitude towards it. So I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> really? Are you really the grouch or the Grinch? I mean, uh, the most difficult part of being a parent to me was pretending I don't hate Christmas. <laughs> wow. Wait, okay. this is a kid-friendly podcast, so as far as I'm concerned, Santa is real. Absolutely. And the Easter Bunny. Yep. I don't mind the day itself when you're with family. I, I dislike what it does to the preceding and following months. No, I can understand some of that, yeah. I'll, I'll let it go. Otherwise, uh, get, Kelly's going to come in and yell at me. We're going to get a rant going here. Yeah. I, once I get going, it's hard to stop. So I'm just going to... Yeah. We'll stop there for that one. No, you're into this is home automating your Christmas lights. That's the only way you're getting into this holiday season. I, I, I did that after a fashion. I pay a guy. Ah. Well. There's more than one way to skin a cat, right? <laughs> Definitely. Um. So when in your education experience, what are the hardest skills to teach? What are the things that like maybe you didn't figure out or took the longest time to figure out how to impart this on people who are trying to learn? What are the hardest skills to teach? 
I mean, I guess passion, <laughs> kind of to well, go back to earlier. I, I give you a, a, a political answer there, and I don't know if it's necessarily one skill to teach. It's, and I guess if you're, you know, teaching in a high school environment, but I'll take this from a business perspective. If I'm looking at prospective employees, I want to find people that have that passion for whatever the topic is. So, you know, the teaching part kind of comes naturally. They're going to do it themselves versus, you know, me having to uh, mandate that you're in XYZ training for however many weeks or months. It's something that because that person has a passion for the technology or the topic or whatever, they're going to want to do it. And it will come much easier for all involved uh, if you can bring people like that into your sphere of influence. Yeah. And I think that if, uh, I mean, I haven't had prior to working here a lot of experience with it, but if you have a team full of people like that and a culture that kind of creates that, the work that you can get done, the trust that you can have, the kind of efficiency that you can find when you have all those things kind of firing at all cylinders is really quite spectacular. And it's really rewarding to work on a team that's like that. Absolutely right. That's why I love it at Microsoft. That's kind of the, the way we treat everybody. Uh, everybody is in... Uh, empowered to ask questions and it's okay to not know something and you always have another avenue to to find an answer so yeah i hear the emails awesome. are a bit much though you get a lot of emails oh my gosh yes <laughs> the, the emails yeah now it's teams messages oh <laughs> i've i've heard of some pretty big uh teams message threads yeah yeah so for for emails you can always just build rules to avoid a lot of things you know i don't can you do the same thing for teams not at this point that i know of anyway you pretty much you get the well i mean you can turn notifications off to some degree but you know then it goes back to that that human thing am i missing something should i be here you know should i be in this meeting do they need me here or what you know those kinds of things so we have an executive here that has an amazing gift to once he realizes he's not important to the meeting, he'll just nope out of it. And I respect that a lot. That's fantastic. Absolutely. That's a great skill. <laughs> is that an Irish goodbye? Is that what they call that? I, I don't I don't know what it's called. I just uh, I have seen him on more than one occasion. Just in the middle of meetings like, I don't think I have anything to add to this and walk right out and like that is awesome. I don't know what level you have to hit. Day, huh? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, if your schedule is all meetings. You have to do that kind of thing and be have a flow for like, okay, I got what I needed from this. I can see where this is going. Some so and so will take notes. I need to do this. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's only so much headspace. Yep, we were talking about that earlier. There's only, and you got to find what works for you long term. You know, you can't think that you can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Yeah, maybe for a day. And then you have to take a week off because you're exhausted. You know, you have to find what kind of works for you in every aspect of life. Right. Yeah. goes back to the culture, right? You have to, you don't have to have the same work-life balance that somebody else does in the company. Uh, you need to figure out what works best for you and how you can be most efficient and insane all at the same time. Yeah. And when you're working on a skilled team, you don't need to be the most technical at everything all the time. It can be so massively useful to just be the person who asks the questions that maybe should be asked that aren't technically super difficult, but just curious, engaged, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I totally agree. I'm the question guy. So I'm always asking people questions around here and I prefer it that way uh, just because I learn so much more and you kind of think it different or I think it's a little different mindset when you come into the room and you know there are probably a hundred people here that know more about this subject than I do. So I can we can really dig into the weeds uh, of a lot of topics if you ask the right questions. Yep. But to be on those teams, you know, you don't have to be the expert at all the topics. Um, it's just yeah. such a funny thing, like to know whenever you say it out loud, like yeah, that makes sense. But for some reason, to me in my mind, I had it pegged that like everywhere is just full of just complete 100% perfect people. They have it all figured out. They're never tired. They always yeah. do the best work. They don't make mistakes. They work at the best companies. You know, everything is always going according to plan. But in reality, yep. 
Yeah, I need those affirmations to say some of these things. That's what it is because it's like the there things that go. are yep. true on the surface, but you know, sometimes you can forget them. I, I can see at the end of this, Andrew's going to have his own JSON with hyper specific <laughs> affirmations. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I do find those useful, man. I, I did um, Ultimate Frisbee for a while. Whenever I was a beginner, I would drop it all the time, just like a spaz a little bit, which is common for people who are just getting it. Um, but I would have this thing where I would just kind of whisper to myself, swift, smooth, confident. You know, don't go spazzing out there. Just go through it. It's all good smoothly, though. Um, mm -hmm. And eventually it helps. Either it helped or I just kept playing and got better. But Yeah, I mean, it, with the affirmation thing, I thought it was totally ridiculous why you know, try to go down the, the bullet journaling road. And once you do, or once I did it for a while, a few days or weeks or whatever it was, you can really tell a difference in, you know, how you think about yourself and things and, and all that stuff. It does matter. Definitely. Um, you know, anytime we talk to anyone, uh, whether that be at a bar or on this podcast, we find that Beyond the surface differences, we all have so much in common in so many ways. Not only as PowerShell people, whenever we talk to people without a PowerShell background, when you kind of break it all down, we all have very, very similar struggles and thoughts and things of that nature. And um, your experience is not, you're not the only one feeling these feelings and dealing with these things. Nope, absolutely not. We're all the same in a lot of ways. So, Definitely. It seems to me that we just found the cure for the yips. We should be contacting baseball teams and selling our product what the yips yeah, yeah the yips in baseball is when all of a sudden a player loses the ability to do a basic skill set uh there was a second baseman i can't remember his name that all of a sudden couldn't not block. not block allison he, he couldn't yeah. throw to first uh, he wow. couldn't throw it like 10 feet yep or i don't know for the year but it was a long while he was on sports center and all kinds of things yeah and interesting uh, yeah, like Daniel Bard, the closer for the Rockies currently, he was a up-and-coming star for the Red Sox, and then all of a sudden he couldn't throw a pitch accurately. And he came back at 35 years old, and he got his accuracy back, and he's still good. But it was there's a 8- to 10-year period where he just couldn't throw a pitch. You mess it up one or two times, and then you get in your head, and you think, man, I really don't belong here, and just things go sideways from there. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't have all the answers, but it's interesting how the body and mind are connected. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting that he got it back afterwards. Um, I watch MMA a lot and you can oftentimes see their mental struggles and sometimes they'll kind of lose their edge they had earlier and start to doubt themselves. As you can imagine, if you're freaking fighting in your underwear in front of thousands of people <laughs> potentially getting knocked out, but punched yeah. in the face all along the way. That, that's where I yeah. always like the, the confidence of, uh, Uriah Faber. Because he, he would give up his back, which is almost always a defeating position, and he never even looked nervous about it. He just waited out. It was always fascinating to watch that kind of confidence. It, it is interesting to see the fighters who are willing to like spend time in massively uncomfortable positions and really fight out versus the ones who get there and are just kind of done. Um, and a lot of times, the ones who become champions are those that really keep going till the very last second. Um, and that's an, I don't know why we're talking about MMA. Well, we, we went on sports. We started with the yips, but just because we carried it. I, we so it's to, your fault. Okay. No, we need, we need to bottle this and sell it to the MLB. Yes. It's like, have you, Wait. have you considered thinking positive? That'll be $10,000. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think, yeah. Thinking positive might be an oversimplification because with humans, you know, things are so complex. There could be so many things at play. We have so little context on so-and-so's life. Who knows? I don't try to have the answers. I just observe. I just try to ask the right questions. Yep. And sometimes there is no answer. The question is the answer, you know, the search for the kind of, because it's a balancing act. Our, our needs are changing. What works for us is kind of changing. So a lot of times uh, we'll come to different conclusions in these conversations and thoughts. Yeah. But, well, this is interesting. We covered the cloud. We covered security. We covered passion. Um, all kinds of stuff. We went the to yips. MMA and the yips. Yeah. I, I could I could see Andrew diving into the yips now because when you first hear about the phenomenon, you think it's a joke, but then you look into it. It's well documented for several professionals. Mm -hmm. 
There's, it kind of sounds like the thing where sometimes people just can't talk anymore, you know, without understanding or whatever, just are unable to speak for a certain period of time. And then they kind of get it back. Just one of those things where it's like, interesting. I don't understand it, but something. The mind is a complex piece of equipment. And so is the human experience. But you know what? I tell you what, I'm glad to have found the PowerShell community and a lot of other cool people who are kind, who are awesome, and who are kind of, we're learning together about PowerShell stuff. Um, but those, a lot of the same lessons that you can apply to solving problems at work, if you kind of abstract, you can apply them to a lot of other things too. Absolutely. Like I said, that the PowerShell community was key for me when I was, you know, younger and trying to get a feel for what PowerShell is and how I can use it. And it's been absolutely instrumental in my career trajectory to this point. So uh, thank you for all those people out there that answered some of my seemingly um, elementary questions for PowerShell. So. All right. Well, I think we've come to the, the part where Andrew shills for the podcast. The shilling. Okay. <clears throat> it's been a while. Uh, we haven't recorded in like two weeks, so I'm unfamiliar with what I need to say. So if I miss something, just let me know. But kind audience members, beloved listeners, if you're still here with us, you've been to some places because this conversation has gone in a bunch of different directions. And uh, I hope you've had fun with us. I know I've had a blast. Um, if you did enjoy this, please don't forget to give us a thumbs up on YouTube. Yeehaw. Maybe drop a little comment. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you have something to say, some feedback, you want to say hello, you can email us at powershellpdq.com or, hey, Twitter, hit us up, at PowerShellPod. Say hello, say whatever. You want to see a certain guest, let us know. Um, is there anything else I missed, Jordan? No, you know, they say a true master of a craft never stops improving, and we get to watch that every week. You're doing an excellent job, fellas. Excellent job. Thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was an awesome discussion. Fantastic. Yes, thank I appreciate you, for you having me. Thanks for having me. It's been, uh, it's been fun. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plough. You don't want to be messing with them, guys. They are bad news. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com.